Hi, my name is Nick, and I'll be sharing with you out of the passage of Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. And I'm going to read it here for you, and then we'll jump in. Ephesians 1, 3 to 7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And it's to his praise, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And Paul begins with this first phrase, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just to remind us, Paul is in prison and he's actually been there for probably two years, and scholars debate whether it's in prison or in house arrest, but whatever the state is, he's in prison. And some of us can maybe relate to this, being in lockdown or in quarantine, but the reality is my two-year, my, sorry, my two-week quarantine doesn't compare to Paul's two-year imprisonment. And so in the midst of this, in a dark, cold cell where Paul would have to scrounge for food probably, he says, blessed be God. And I just wonder why he says this. How could he say this being in prison? And I think there's a few different reasons, but I'm just going to give three out of this short passage for time's sake. And they all start with the word in. And so as Paul's in Christ, he's in the heavenly places and he's in love. The first one is Paul's reality is that he's in prison, but he's also in Christ. And this phrase permeates the book of Ephesians 11 times, Paul says, in Christ. And it's probably one of the most important phrases in the book as it declares our union with Christ. Christ who calmed the raging sea. Christ who healed the paralyzed, the deaf and the lame. Christ who walked in truth and love. Christ who humbled himself and washed the disciples' feet and the next day they betrayed him, Christ who walked in the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit, displaying joy and peace and patience and teaching and being hospitable to others and bringing healing to all. This is Christ. And so Christ embodies this and we are in this and get to inherit everything Christ is. Paul is in prison, but he's also in Christ. We are in Vancouver, but we also are in Christ. And that's why Paul can say, blessed Bless you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it gets better. Paul goes on and he says, we are in Christ with every spiritual pressing and in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly places. And this is a reality that we're actually in a new family, a new nation per se. Our citizenship is not here on earth, but is actually in heaven. And while we're located physically here in Canada or wherever you may be, and we have earthly families. We are part of a heavenly nation and a heavenly family. And this is important because for Paul, he was talking to both Jews and Gentiles. And it's important for us today too, as we seem to be very divided at times. And Paul actually goes on later in Ephesians 6, and he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark age, this dark world, and against forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I think what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to redirect 
where we are and where we see from. He's trying to redirect us that it's not against one another. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against our neighbor. It's not against our coworker, or our friends or our spouses. Because we are located in Christ in the heavenly places, there's a greater reality at play. There's a battle and there's a conflict within the unseen powers of this dark world. And often we can just perceive things as flesh and blood when we should be perceiving from spiritual and heavenly eyes. I think we oftentimes view the mentality from a cruise ship rather than I think from we should view it from a battleship. Whereas a cruise ship, we have our preferences, our comforts, our desires, our wants, and we tend to divide a lot of times. Whereas on a battleship or a sailboat, if you like, we're on mission together. Everyone has their role and purpose, and there's a greater battle reality at play. And lastly, Paul is in love. He's not in love romantically. He's in love because he is the beloved. He's loved by Christ. In verse four, it says, in love, he, the Lord, predestined us for adoption to himself. And this is so crucial because God didn't choose us because he needed to. He didn't choose us because we were perfect or we were good at something or we were worth it. He chose us because he loves us. God's love is self-giving. It's not self-seeking. It's for the good of the other, not for one's own benefit. And it never gives up, and it always pursues. So in this wonderful passage, Paul exhorts us that we are in Christ, we are in the heavenly places, and we are in the love of God. So I'm praying that we find ourselves in whatever state, in whatever manner, in whatever location, that our whole being would be saturated, knowing that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that we are chosen, adopted, and redeemed. And all this is through God's self-giving, never-ending love. Hi, my name is Dory, and the passage that I am sharing about is Ephesians 1, 15 to 19. I love to read it for us, and then share how a story, a story and dissect how I think the story and the scripture are very significant to the life and culture of our church. So Ephesians 1, 15 to 19. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength. And then he goes on into saying that the same power is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Wow. Okay, on to the story. In 2007, I moved to Vancouver from Venezuela as an international student. I was 16 at the time and eager to know the world. I was young and naive, and I absolutely had no desire to know God. One morning on my way to school at the bus stop, a lady named Leticia approached me 
and invited me to an alpha course. In my mind, I thought about running and I was polite and said, well, thank you, but I'll consider it and let you know. Fast forward around five years later, I actually ended up going to an alpha course that my dad had invited me to and I gave my life to Jesus. I literally remember it being like all of a sudden a new world was open in front of my eyes. I wanted to know everything about God and the Bible and connect with others that did the same and felt the same way. I started attending every single meeting at church, especially prayer meetings. So one morning at a prayer meeting, there was a lady that started walking towards me and she was crying. And she said, are you Dory? And I said, yes. And she goes, my name is Leticia. And I met you at a bus stop five years ago and have been praying for you every single day after that day. She said, there, was so, there were so many times that I just wanted to stop praying for you. And I sensed God saying to me, no, Leticia, just keep praying. I did not know if you had gone back to your country. I just thought I was wasting my time but the conviction was so strong that I just had to pray. She said, I just thought that I was wasting my time, but the conviction was so strong that I just had to pray. I truly believe that the reason I am standing here today with you is because of the relentless stubbornness of Leticia in prayer. Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians was relevant to the church of Ephesus, but it is significantly relevant to us right now. There is so much need in this city for a move of God, a stirring of wisdom and revelation, such a deep need for everyone to know the true hope to which they've been called to. And here is what I think it will take. It will take the rising of, of Leticias that just don't give up praying for Doris. It will take you and me, all of us, being relentless and stubborn in prayer because we know the one who has the key to true wisdom and revelation. Because we know the one that truly has the power to lift off darkness and transform this city, this province, actually this world. It will take the kind of people that will just put a stake in the ground and say, I will keep asking. I will keep praying, even when it seems like I am wasting my time. And like my friend Aaron Y would say, yes, let us be the kind of church that wastes a lot of time. Let us waste our time on Jesus, for he is worthy. Hello everyone, my name is Raghav and the passage I'm sharing is Ephesians 4.30. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Or if you have an NIV, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The moment Chris gave this text to me, I was wondering, I was like, what? I grieve the Holy Spirit all the time and I'm not qualified to preach about this. 
So if you're feeling the same way, don't worry, we're in the same boat. And we will cover that emotion later in the text. Contextually, we can see that Paul is giving the church ways to fulfill God's purpose in a church as a whole. In previous sentences, Paul talks about a better way of living and getting rid of the old self. Now Paul urges us not to bring Holy Spirit sorrow or grieve the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a quick moment. In the, what I've observed in my, whatever, few years of being a Christian, that in the personhood of Trinity, God and Son are discussed quite a bit, but the Holy Spirit is either left as a residue or an experiential catalyst. I think we all, including me, need to relearn and refresh of who the Holy Spirit is, but I guess that's a talk for another day. Paul used the word lupio, which is to cause sorrow, pain, or distress. It is evident that the Holy Spirit is personal. Only persons feel sorrow, pain, or distress. The Holy Spirit is not like gods or ideal or gods or energies and different ideologies that are just so impersonal and out there, not caring about what's going on here, or are always mad about something we're not doing. The, the big and main part of leaving Hinduism and Sikhism or the gurus I was following was learning that this God was a personal God. He loved me, a love that was sorrowful when I was walking the wrong track, that was sorrowful when I was in pain. It was not like the other gods who were just out there not caring about me. It was a God who really cared about the deepest pain and wants of my life. Sorry, super sweaty. I know I'm not a parent, but I know the emotion that comes when someone you love with your heart is making a decision that is going to cause some hurtful consequences for them. The Holy Spirit feels the same way when we are about to indulge in impurities mentioned in the previous passages and the passage ahead of this verse, like anger, lust, deception, and all kinds of different evil behavior. And Paul again and again reminds us to not do those things and get in the new way of life. Paul also mentions about the one spirit a few times in the book of Ephesians. This was a revelation for me as I never thought about disunity as a thing that will grieve the Holy Spirit. John Stodge summed it up in a really good way. He says, since he is the Holy Spirit, he's always grieved by unholiness. And since he is one spirit, disunity will also cause him grief. In fact, anything incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with his own nature and therefore hurts him. Now, after hearing all this, it is easy to be discouraged and wonder where we are in our relationship with God. Paul reminds us how we are sealed for the day of redemption. As in chapter one, he explains the moment the Holy Spirit enters in us is the moment we are stamped by the authentication that we are guaranteed to be saved on the day of redemption. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to think every day, oh, am I saved, am I in or am I out? Paul reminds us that we are in the day we believed and there's a seal to, to give us a guarantee. Paul wants to remind us 
the Holy Spirit dwells in us and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God and that how we are representation of who Jesus is in our culture. I don't think that this should give us a license of doing whatever we want to do, but because I don't think it's all about that. I think things shift for me personally when instead of following rules and wondering how far is too far, I start thinking about the things that cause God sorrow, that things that will promote holiness, things that will further the kingdom of God, things that will increase the power of God in my life. That's when things shift. To sum it up, Paul wants us to grow in Christ-likeness, not grieve the Holy Spirit, and remember that we are saved for the day of redemption. Hi, everybody. My name is Rachel, and I am thrilled to be with you today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It reads, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what Paul has just finished saying right before this verse, to give us some context, is that before Christ, we were spiritually dead, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, products of a fallen creation, ultimately separated from God. But, uh, huge and important transition word there, very crucial when describing the gospel, but uh, being rich in mercy, God gave us new life through Christ, a new identity in him. And those who receive that mercy and accept Jesus as their savior are now in him, in Christ. Not dead anymore, but alive in him. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. Um, and it gives us our context for verse 10. Let's read it again. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, even in this one verse, there's lots we could cover, but I want to start off with this idea of us being God's workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is piwima, which gives us our English words for poem and poetry. It means something thought of and then made. And then in this context, it means us, uh, we are that something thought of and made by God himself. There are many verses in the Bible that speak to how each person, whether or not they know the Lord, is uh, made in the image of God, wonderfully made and beautifully designed, and therefore worthy of dignity and are of equal value. But what Paul is referring to as workmanship here in this context um, are men and women redeemed and saved by grace. He's talking to those who are in Christ. He's saying you are products of God's handiwork, of his creativity. Paul's saying you are a product of the redemption story and each of your lives in that story have been thought out, written out, planned out, and then through Jesus, played out, intentionally worked out by God himself. And in that story, Paul's saying we've all been given unique gifts and skills and passions and we've been handcrafted into uh, the greater story with the things that make us us. It's amazing. Paul then answers the question, why? Why did God craft each one of us so uniquely and so precisely? Well, the answer is for good works. Good works which God prepared for his people to do. Now the phrase good works comes with lots to unpack, uh, but essentially in scripture the word good means something by its nature pleasing to God, something honorable to him. 
And if you're familiar with Paul's teachings, you'll know right away that good works do not merit salvation, but rather good works are the fruit of it. So Paul is saying in verse 10 that once we come to know Christ, then wherever we are, whatever season of life we're in as a Christian, as someone who is in Christ, we have to be marked by good works. We have to reflect Christ in our daily life. We have to represent him, and then we have to give him the glory because that is what we've been handcrafted to do. Uh, I just recently graduated from university and have now entered this unique season uh, where I'm no longer following a really predictable schedule, uh, which was comforting to me in a lot of ways. I always knew what was coming next. Um, I've transitioned now into this season where I don't necessarily know what my immediate next steps are. They seem uh, a bit blurry. Um, but what is so cool to me as I reflect on this verse, and I hope that it's something that you can think about too, uh, is the fact that we don't have to be certain. My plans don't have to be crystal clear for me to know that each morning when I wake up, I know that good works that are pleasing to the Lord and that represent Christ have already been planned out for me, laid out, prepared for me. In each conversation that I have, in each circumstance that I find myself in, I can be certain about the fact that I've been uniquely made by God um, and written out into his uh, bigger story. He's thought about my skills, he's thought about my passions and my giftings and prepared good works for me. I just have to step in. And so Lord, I pray um, through the power of your spirit, would you help us step in to the good works that you have so uniquely prepared for each one of us. Ultimately, Lord, our desire is to bring you glory by doing so. And God, we are so grateful uh, that you have included us, your precious uh, handiwork into your bigger story. In your name we pray, amen. Hi everyone, my name is Michelle and the passage I'm gonna be sharing about is on Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Let me read it for you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. This text is teaching us to pray with a confident boldness because we have a father that gives freely. It teaches us that we, should, we are praying or should be praying out of being rooted and established in love. And the reason why we're able to pray with such confident boldness because it is because of the established relationship that qualifies the ask. It qualifies the boldness of the ask and even the act of asking itself. We can pray bold prayers because we're approaching the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. But guess what? 
we're not approaching as strangers. We're approaching as citizens, as saints. And even more than that, we're approaching as family members. And this relationship that qualifies the ask was not established by us. It was established by the cornerstone, Jesus. That we who were once far off are now brought near. And we who were once separated by a dividing wall of hostility are now reconciled to the Father. Not by our own doing, of course, but by grace alone. And this was Paul's ask. And his prayer definitely qualified as bold and confident as they come. His earnestness was characterized by his kneeling when prayer was usually done standing up. And Paul's prayer was this, that we, the church, will be strengthened with power so that Jesus would dwell in our hearts through faith. Our heart is the center of our will and decision-making. And he's praying for Jesus to make a permanent living space, an abode, a home in our hearts. And second, he's praying that we would have the strength to lay a hold of all the dimensions of Jesus' love together with the members of his household. And get this, so that ultimately we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this is not the kind of fullness that makes us God. Just like when you pour water into a cup, the cup does not turn into water. It doesn't change its chemical makeup, but instead, the cup is being used for the vessel that it was made for. Just like us, we were made to be filled as vessels for God. Now, this passage speaks to me in a number of different ways. But one important way that it speaks to me is Paul is saying that there's more, more abundance than there is lack, more possibilities than there are limitations, and more fullness than there is emptiness, far more than we can think or imagine. And in some translations, it will say immeasurably more. And I think to myself, what could be more than being filled with all the fullness of God? I wonder about this, and I pray about it as well. But what I'm also learning is that maybe as Christ dwells and makes a permanent living space in our hearts, and as we work out the dimensions of our new location in Jesus with the other household members or the church, our imagination of what it would be like to be filled with all the fullness of God would not even come close. When we, vessels made for the fullness of God, finally gets filled, not what we're trying to fill ourselves with, but being filled with all his fullness, I wonder. I wonder what kind of life and mission we would have, what kind of bold prayers might come out of this filling. For some of us, we have yet to pray our boldest prayers, and maybe for others, we feel like we're already praying the boldest prayers in our life. And perhaps out of this filling, we might continue to be strengthened, not to lose heart, to keep praying, to keep asking. Either way, the good news is our rooted and grounded relationship with the maker of heaven and earth qualifies our boldest prayers through Jesus. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.